Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. What's the deal there, Dr. E? Did you had some comment, uh, please? Uh, it didn't, thank God it didn't fall into the mud. It just missed, though. It, uh, wow. We were on a little bit higher ground, but they had this, um, in December, there was a huge fire. In fact, the biggest fire in California history that was raging right up behind our house in the hills. And we had to evacuate for about two weeks, and then we got back, I think, on December the 22nd, and uh, which is basically December, January, and February, the rainy months, and we've been in a drought forever here, which is what kind of fed the whole fire because everything was so dry, but I mean, it just completely burned it up there, and so there was nothing but this kind of layer of ash and, and, you know, hardened soil, and so then on on the night of January the 9th, or the early morning of January the 9th, there came this really huge rainfall in the space of about five minutes i mean it's just a cloudburst for five minutes up in the mountains and it hit this this ash and the ash combined with uh you know the dirt underneath made this stuff that was a consistency of uh of you know poured concrete basically and it came tearing down through these streams and it floated up boulders that were bigger than houses out of the streams i mean it was unbelievable and they came tearing down through and and just tearing up houses and killing people along the way. And, and in our little community right here, which isn't very big, there were 23 people killed. Oh, wow. Holy cow. You know, all in the space of just uh, a few minutes. Where do you where do you live at, Dr. Eats? In Montecito, California. Montecito, okay. So it's up north a bit. Okay, so I'm, so, I'm farther south, kind of. Where are you? I'm in a place called Dana Point, which is... Oh, uh no Dana Point well. Yeah, so just down the road. So, well, it's a pleasure. Zach, are we recording? Yeah, we're, we recording? we're rolling. So we're, oh, we're good rolling. To go. so, we, so we got the mudslides to our yeah. tour. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. So, Doctor, it's, it's absolutely. First of all, it's an honor to have you on here. You know, I've kind of followed some of your stuff for years now. I've watched a number of your presentations. It's, I'm sure, you know, and you look very youthful, by the way. But I'm sure, as someone who's been around the block for a while, and you've seen <laughs> this stuff come and go, and. Uh, you know, you, you've just been watching this low-carb, you know, stuff evolve and, and you know, kind of go back and forth over the years. You've got some perspective on this, and it's kind of interesting to get some of your perspective on this stuff. And I I know there's been some interesting things that I've – just little things you've talked about that I've watched some of your talks, and I said, this is pretty interesting. I'd like to kind of further further <laughs> up this stuff. So some of the things, um, just from a, from a you know, 100,000-foot view, I just – kind of get your perspective on how things have gone and come and gone since you guys wrote. What year did you guys write Protein Power? I know that's been quite a few uh, years ago uh, now. It was 1996. Yeah, so that's, you know, we're, we're you know, we're 20 years into that, and and, and, and you've been doing that stuff even longer than that. And so <laughs> yeah, it's very started, interesting to see, you know, you know what you've learned <laughs> through the years. We started with our, uh, you know, treating patients with low carbon about 84, I think. 
Yeah, so 30-plus years of this stuff. And then I know you reference guys. I know you've, I've seen some of your talks, and you go back to guys like Blake Donaldson and – you know, we've got we've got the history goes back. you know, even even uh, what was it, Salisbury, you know, he was back there doing that crazy, you know, meat diets back then. So it's kind of interesting to see how it just kind of comes and goes over the years. But the science, I think, is starting to slowly kind of figure some of this stuff out, perhaps. And so what is your, you know, some of the neat topics that I, that I thought were particularly interesting. I know you had a, uh, a talk somewhere when you talked about some of the some of the radioisotope data. And I think that's that's fascinating to me. I love I love listening to some of the anthropology. It's just as a kid, I was always fascinated by that stuff. You know, you're kind of envisioning these crazy crow magnons and, you know, mm-hmm. Homo erectus running around. And so what are your, what did you learn when you, when you looked into that sort of research? What kind of stuff did you take away from that? Uh, it, w- <laughs> it was pretty interesting how that, that whole thing came about. Uh, you know, I was uh, in bed one night. You know, I'd written a book in 1989 called Thin So Fast that sort of um, – hundreds of thousands of people couldn't have cared less about and it sort of slipped beneath the waves. It was right at the height of the low carb or the low fat craze. And anyway, the, uh, <clears throat> I was doing just some general reading one night and I got a hold of this book that talked about, uh, uh, the ancient Egyptians and the, the data that, um, had been kind of pried loose from uh, doing autopsies on mummies. And it said that, uh, you know, that the Egyptians had bad heart disease. And I knew from my own reading before that Egyptians had basically a grain based diet. And I thought, what? And so that, that launched me off on this whole paleopathology adventure, which includes the radioisotopes. And it turns out that these isotopes are a real, um, objective way to measure what, early man or other creatures ate whenever, you know, back in time, because stable isotopes by definition are stable. They don't change. They're not like, uh, you know, the carbon that decays that you use to, to do, uh, carbon dating. These are stable. And so you can tell by the ratios of the stable isotopes, um, kind of what, what people ate back then. It's, it's sort of a complex thing to go through. And I go through it in my lectures, but basically you can, you can look at collagen from back then and tell whether an animal was an herbivore or a carnivore and not only tell whether it was an herbivore or a carnivore, you can even tell if it was a super carnivore, meaning that, uh, the super carnivores ate other carnivores because every, every step up the food chain, the, uh, the nitrogen, the stable isotope of nitrogen was, um, was what's the word I'm groping for? You know, it accumulated, uh, you know, like mercury does in tuna, and and it was magnified. So if if it's a seven, let's say in an herbivore, then uh, it may be fourteen in a carnivore, which tells you that the carnivores ate the the herbivores, obviously, and then it might be eighteen in a super carnivore that says that you know that, that tells you that they ate other carnivores because they're accumulating this. Um, uh, stable isotope of nitrogen as they go and it's a really a a definitive way to tell what uh, people ate back then and it's pretty clear that that early humans were carnivores or super carnivores neanderthals were super carnivores and so if if you go back we i mean we cut our evolutionary teeth uh, as carnivores basically super carnivores really yeah doctor go ahead sorry i'm just gonna say if i could jump in real quick i want to ask a quick question about that too because uh you know i think information like that is like is is pretty valuable when you look at kind of how like you know humans have 
become you know as as thriving i mean you could you, it's hard to not <laughs> make the argument that humans are thriving and if, if anything we're thriving a little too much um and like so with with that knowledge of kind of saying like well this is kind of what we were doing as we kind of grew to the the population that we have um where do you think that people are kind of missing the boat on that in terms of saying like um, humans aren't meant to eat meat. We're meant to eat, you know, a, a very plant-based diet, and maybe have some meat in there here and there. Um, is is that just like a lot of shallow dives getting kind of recirculated, or do you think that's just a lot of deception and stuff like that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, a lot of people just look back uh, a few thousand years. In a few thousand years is the blink of an eye in evolutionary time. And when agriculture came along, people did switch from basically a carnivore diet to a, uh, a plant-based diet to an agricultural-based diet. Not everybody, but a lot of societies did. Um, and that was sort of the basis of, <clears throat> of our whole civilization is, is being able to, instead of being uh, nomadic, people could settle in one spot and grow crops and a small number of people could buy provide food for entire cities worth of population. And if you go back, you know, two or three or four thousand years, you'll see that the majority of people probably did subsist on on plant based diets. But if you look a little farther and not farther back, but if you if you look at the the paleopathology and paleopathology is is pathology uh, applied to to paleolithic remains, what you see is that there was a, a complete uh, kind of reversal of the good health that, that our early ancestors experienced when they switched to agriculture. Stature went down, cortical bone thickness decreased, uh, signs of arthritis actually went way up. You'd think that people who went out and hunted would have more arthritis, but they really didn't because people that were involved in agriculture did a lot of you know repetitive motions, and so they ended up having uh, more uh, actual osteoarthritis than our earlier hunting ancestors did. They had um, uh, much greater signs of infection and malnutrition. I mean, you can see all kinds of changes in the bone that, that tell you that uh, they were, um, you know, they had a lot of infections. They had much more tooth loss. They had a much greater level of decay. Hunters had almost no decay in their teeth. Agriculturalists, if they lived any length of time, almost didn't have teeth. And uh, they had, um, they had, you know, what's called Protic hyperostosis, which is a sign you can see on skulls, and Kruber orbitalia, which you can see inside the orbits of skulls, that show that uh, a, a lot of, of agriculturalists were, were iron deficient. Uh, and so there are just a lot of things you can see just on skeletal remains without getting into soft tissue remains that we have with the Egyptians, where you see a whole lot of other stuff. But just in that, you can, you can see that, that, that health uh, kind of devolved when we made the switch from carnivory to uh, to agriculture, yeah, we we certainly do. We, we didn't conduct randomized control trials when we adopted agriculture. I can tell you that. I mean, oh. it was kind of. I oh. think it was. A, it was. A, it was a. We had no choice. But and certainly, you know, going on a purely grain-based diet certainly is going to leave you short in a lot of areas. And I think that's pretty clear. Let me go back to the isotope data because I know, and I think you're most with with protein. You know, we're talking about nitrogen, stable nitrogen data. Most of that data that I have seen has come out of Europe, you know, obviously with the Neanderthals in, in, in you know, Ice Age Europe. Do we have any data throughout the rest, rest of the world that sort of 
that we can examine things out of Africa, Asia, you know, uh, North America that might lend an idea of what they what they ate or is it still. And then the other question I have for you is, you know, it seems like when we look at these Central European populations, one of the things we notice is a, a propensity towards tallness. I mean, these were tall people. You know, if we look at the Gravettians, perhaps the tallest people that ever lived, and that often is a proxy for overall population nutritional status. And then we look at places where maybe they're warmer climates, say Southeast Asia, where people of all, they tended to be smaller populations. Maybe they, they lived on fruits and, and other other foods. I, I don't know. What is it, What does the isotope data say over there, or do we have that data? Uh, as far as I know, <clears throat> most of that work has been done in Europe. I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. I have a, a friend named Michael Richards, who's at the Max Planck Institute, who's kind of the go-to guy on that. I, I should reach out to him and find out the answer to that question because he's heavily involved in all that. And when I dug all this up and, and uh, in fact, I learned it from him. And then when I put it together on a blog post, I wrote it in for my presentations. I think I put that presentation together four or five or six years ago. And at that time, the data that I had from Richards was all European. And uh, yeah. so I don't know um, whether we've got it or not. You know, I don't know over here. Uh, there are issues of, of uh, destroying uh, Native American remains, um, legal issues. And I don't know if, if that's been done because it does destroy the tissue when you do stable isotope analysis. So I don't know if, if that's a problem. I don't know if it's been done. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's a good question. Let me let me continue along this vein. I mean, a lot of people are under the impression, you know, we, we often hear that the prehistoric man, you know, they had a short brutish life. They died at 25 years of age. And when I look at that, you know, when I when I as as an orthopedic guy looking at it with an X-ray, I can date a kid pretty well. I can look at a kid's X-ray and say that's a five or four year old. Once you get into the adults, you know, once you get past about 25, 30 years of age, it becomes difficult. And I know some anthropologists have read some, and they agree. It says we can't accurately date adults after a certain age, and so we say we presume this person was at least 30 years of age. Could have been 60. You know, we don't know. Is there? You know, what are your what are your thoughts regarding that sort of thing that guys all died at 25 and no one lived very long back then? Well, I mean, it's uh, if you look at at um, the longevity tables from, let's say, the 1800s and, you know, don't hold me to this, but it's uh, I think that, you know, the the median lifespan was about 44 years old. But you look, I mean, Abraham Lincoln was shot when he was 65. There are a lot of people that live to be advanced ages. It's, uh, it's when you take the statistics together with the infant mortality that, that really lowers that. And and so I'm sure that there have been elderly people in every age. I mean, I'm just reading this book by an Italian back in the 16th, 1600s who lived to be 99. And so, I mean, I think people uh, achieved elderly status probably throughout history and uh and i and i don't see any reason that it shouldn't in prehistoric man i mean maybe they didn't live to be 99 but they uh i'm sure lived to be elderly a certain portion of the population it wasn't like everybody got to 25 and died it's just they had a lot of things out there uh that could make them die prematurely and uh you know they they had uh, injuries from these animals that they hunted I've got this, I wish I had it here, I've got this, you know, this skull in my library downstairs of a cave bear that's just enormous, and it's, um, I mean, it's huge, 
And if you take the full skeleton, they stand, I don't know, eight feet tall. And early man hunted those to extinction. And so you, you know that the bears had to win from time to time. And, uh, and you know, with mammoths and mastodons and all these things, uh, you know, so they could get killed easily, which I'm sure reduced the average lifespan. And an anti-aging researcher named Stephen Austin, who I think is up in Idaho, I don't know for sure, but he's been around for a long time. He did a paper showing the, um, the, the rate doubling, I think it's called, it has been a long time since I've read that. But in, in any given age, you can tell what, uh, what your odds are of living, you know, X number of years. And he had this all calculated out and he said an early man, a prehistoric man, that it wasn't all that different than, than in us. So I suspect that a lot of them lived long lifestyles. A lot of them who avoided uh, being, being themselves victimized by other predators. Yeah, it seems like to some degree, at least, uh, you know, nowadays, especially in the United States, we're, we're very much sheltered from all these like potential, like, you know, things that would end us like in a catastrophic way or an immediate way. Whereas now it's like, we've got enough like kind of safety nets in society that, uh, you know, you're probably not going to get killed by a mountain lion or, you know, something like that. So, you know, if you, if, if you just, you know, take care of yourself in a relative manner and then, um, take advantage of the, all the modern technology, you know, you can, you can outlast what someone would have been able to do had to kind of essentially wake up in the morning and their first task was, well, let's figure out what we're going to eat today. And they might spend all day doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, now we've got car wrecks and fentanyl <laughs> that kill enormous numbers of people that they didn't have to worry about. Doctors, one of the, well, I just want to highlight one thing. You said that, you know, back in the 1800s, the median life expectancy was about 45 years of age, which is kind of interesting. And one of the things that people that are critical of, you know, people that are choosing to eat more meat in their diets, they talk about the Inuit dying at a relatively early age. Now, I've looked back at the population data, and back in the 1800s, the Inuit pop life expectancy was about 45. So it was pretty similar to what we see with modern men. One of the things that most people seem to fail to realize is these guys smoke incredibly you know high i mean even to, i just look at a paper from from 2017 their smoking rates are still about 65 percent, and that's down from what it was and so these guys were introduced to smoking in the 1700s by whalers and so they've been smoking at these incredibly high rates something like 80 percent of the population most of the females most of the females smoke when they're pregnant and so i just i just kind of i think a lot of people miss that that sort of uh, yeah. part of the equation there i think it's interesting yeah, they do. And uh, some of Stephenson's papers refer to that. And he said that uh, this mo most Inuits start smoking when they're about nine or 10 years, eight, nine, 10 years old. And he said that the Inuits, uh, I mean, they all thought smoking was a great thing. And the Inuit philosophy was not to deny to children things that that adults thought were great. So they encouraged children to smoke in early age and most of them smoked at, you know, eight, nine, ten years old started smoking. And Stephenson also said that the Inuits looked a lot older than um, um, than their chronologic, chronological age would um, make you think. And so uh, the, um, and I suspect it has a lot to do with the smoking. 
Yep, sure it does. I mean, that's that's interesting. Hey, let's talk about let's go talk about something even older than than prehistoric man because I know this has been a topic of interest to you lately. Let's go talk to something that's farther back. Let's talk about mitochondria because those things are really really old. You know, we want to talk about evolution, but but there's a modern twist on that. So I know you've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of talks around the mitochondria, and I heard you talk, <clears throat> talking about. Uh, like things like steric acid and how the interplay with certain fats uh, interact with mitochondria. So let's talk a little bit about mitochondrial health and what you've been kind of delving into lately. Well, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've often wondered uh, about this, you know, sudden rapid increase that we've had in obesity uh, over the last, uh, say, since 1980, uh, where it's just skyrocketed, the so-called obesity epidemic. And I think that that uh, Gary Taubes has laid out a, a case pretty clearly that prior to then, that obesity was a, a phenomenon of carbon tolerance, and that a, a certain segment of the, the population had that. And old uh, endocrinologists like Raymond Green, Graham Green's brother, uh, Raymond Green was an English uh, uh, famous endocrinologist, and you know he attributed to carb sensitivity to a certain percent of the population. And those people responded really well to carb restriction. And the, uh, you know, a lot of old studies, especially a lot of old German researchers, uh, got onto this way back in the day. And up until the 80s, the obesity epidemic pretty much stayed about, I mean, there wasn't an obesity epidemic. There was a certain percentage of the population that was obese, and it pretty much stayed like that. In fact, I, I put a thing up the other day on Twitter, uh, a video of New York City in, in 1913, and it's incredible. Everybody is just stick thin. And, and you know, and they're obviously dressed very nicely, and they're living in, in what had to have been an expensive city then, so it wasn't that they were poor and didn't have enough to eat. Um, but anyway, the, the population has pretty much stayed the same for a long time, and then in 1980, it cranks up. And so I've wondered and wondered and wondered, what could it be that cranks it up like that? That, uh, you know, that all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, everybody became more obese. And, you know, you can say, well, they don't exercise as much. And I think that's kind of BS because that sort of parallels the craze of jogging. I mean, when I was a kid, which was long before 1980, you, you never saw anybody out jogging or running. And people didn't join health clubs and, you know, people didn't do this and they didn't. And they were still thin. And so... I wondered what could it have been that did that, and you start looking at uh, at at various you know plot lines of uh, from food consumption data, and what you see is that saturated fat trailed off a little bit after 19. Well, if you look at the overall food consumption pattern, what you see is that people have been eating about 240 250 calories more per day, and the vast majority of them are carbohydrates. And you see that protein has stayed about the same, that fat itself has gone up a tiny little bit, but it's switched from, from mainly saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat, to seed oils. And if you look at the increase of seed oil consumption, it pretty much mirrors the increase in obesity. And But that's just a correlation. I mean, you, you can't say that that's causative, but it's so striking, or at least it is to me, that I've just wondered, I mean, anybody that's not an idiot would have to look at that and say, you know, maybe there's something there. What can it be? What can it be? And I've seen all these theories about, you know, that, that uh, and I think they're true, that, that polyunsaturated fats, linoleic acid in particular, uh, cause increased inflammation and they cause, uh, you know, they cause a lot of different problems. But I thought, I don't know that that could be the prime driver. 
And so I've been just grasping around for a mechanism. And I stumbled across one from Peter from Hyperlipid that, you know, really made sense to me. And the more I looked at it and the more I pulled papers and the more I thought about it and studied on it, I'm, I'm really becoming more and more persuaded that it's the right thing. And it's this, um, uh, the way that, um, uh, electrons get into the mitochondria basically. And, you know, everybody knows mitochondria, these little sausage shaped organelles in the cells where the vast majority of our energy is created and is created because electrons go down the electron transport chain. And these electrons come from the breakdown of food. When you, t when you take food that we, which is mainly carbon based and you rip apart these carbon atoms, energy is released. And this is captured in electron carriers and these carriers dump them in the mitochondria, and then they, they take it down this, this mitochondrial uh, electron transport chain from complex to complex. And each step along the way, it loses a little energy, and that energy that's lost is captured and pumping protons across the membrane, so it creates an energy gradient across this membrane. And it's like building up water behind a dam. And then there are little... Uh, there are, are little enzymes in there called ATP synthase. They're like little turbines. And when this energy is built up, it rushes through that, just like water through a turbine in a dam and basically spins it and converts ADP to ATP. And that's the energy currency of life. And our mitochondria make about our body weight in ATP every day. And if you think about that, that's just phenomenal. That, um, you know, I weigh about 200 pounds and that, that, you know, I make 200 pounds of ATP every day. It's just, I mean, it's mind-boggling. But anyway, in in reading about all this and reading Peter's work, um, the the way that the um, the electrons from seed oils enter the mitochondria is different from the way the electrons from a saturated fat, for example, enter the mitochondria or enter the uh, the electron transport chain, basically, and. <clears throat> The, the seed oils can just basically freely flow in, almost like a carb. carb I, mean, I mean, the electrons from glucose can freely flow in there. Uh, but the electrons from saturated fat enter at a different place, and they tend to reduce one of the CoQ, uh, one of the complexes, and it sort of blocks the electrons from going beyond that if that complex is reduced. And when that happens it sends electrons in a reverse way called reverse electron transport. And this reverse electron transport ends up um, uh, with, you know, superoxide ions that end up producing ultimately uh, reactive oxygen species. And these reactive oxygen species actually stimulate the release of a little bit of insulin, which creates localized insulin resistance. And it's a way of, of the, and this seeps out of the mitochondria and into the cell and it's a way for the cell to say, hey, I'm full. You know, I don't need any more nutrients coming in. And when that happens and that stays in the blood, you tend to crank up your, your energy expenditure and you burn off more. But if there's just an open door for all this to come in, then the fat cells just get bigger. And they get bigger to a point at which that overcomes the the loss of insulin sensitivity or the loss of insulin resistance, basically, and then the size of them and probably adipose trig triglyceride lipase and, and perilipin A are involved in this. And it says, okay, shut it down. And so then the cell doesn't get any larger. And that kind of 
defines the limit of obesity and is probably defined genetically by people because some people can get hugely big and other people don't, don't get as big. And, um, and so anyway, that's, that's my working theory on the whole thing that's been picked up from, from Peter, who's a hell of a biochemist. So what is the, so so Dr. Eves, what is the, so what is the, the, uh, sort of, what do we do about that? If that theory holds, I mean, how do we, I mean, what's the take home message? I mean, mean, from my perspective, it's just don't eat seed oils. Yeah. And, and you get, um, and if you don't eat seed oils and, and that's true, then you won't have it. And also saturated fat should be protective. And so I would, you know, I, I recommend that people up their intake of saturated fat and just assiduously avoid seed oils. And you can get, um, you can get a lot of linoleic acid actually in uh, even olive oil, uh, depending on what, what kinds you get. Some of it's, you know, 20, 21, 22%. And so the oil that I like for salads and places that you're going to use oil, what I like is the macadamia nut oil because it's down in the, you know, like one percent linoleic acid, which is, you know, not all that bad. And that's, it, that's what, that's what seed, I was going to say. The seed oils are tough to avoid. I mean, in a modern food supply, mm-hmm. I mean, you go oh, to a grocery absolutely. store, and about ninety percent of the food's got some sort of seed oil in it. So it's absolutely. kind of a, it's, it's tough. And I think that's one of the reasons that low carb actually works as well as it does, because all those things that have seed oils also have carbs in them. So when you cut out the carbs, you cut out that too. And, uh, and anyway, this is totally, you know, unproven It's theoretical, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, all the, all the components that I told you in there, those are not theoretical. That all happens. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The way that all the mechanics work, whether that ends up, uh, being what the cause of this, you know, increased obesity is or not, who knows? Uh, but you got to ask yourself, I mean, you know, people that are, that are low carb diet, uh, promoters always say, as I did, you know, for a long time, say, well, you know, people are getting fat because they're eating more carbohydrates. And people who are believers of the calories in, calories out theory say, well, they're getting fat because they're eating more calories. But you got to ask yourself, why suddenly in 1980 did we start eating more carbohydrates? Did they become more tasty? I don't think so. A donut in 1958 tasted just as good as a donut in 1958. Um, you know, 81, the difference was the donut in 1958 was made with a different kind of fat. Probably lard, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and how much of that do you think, too, is just like kind of like um, it, you, you just you kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, but like just like kind of that like dosage and context scenario, like I think of like someone who probably went through the very first McDonald's drive through probably got something that was more akin to a Happy Meal, even if they ordered one of the value meals. And it's like nowadays you go through a McDonald's drive through and if you don't ask any questions, you're probably going to get like way more than what you, you, you really need. And then you might even get asked to go up and above that if you want to kind of supersize it. And so like you go from like an eight ounce soda to like a 32 ounce soda. And then maybe you go from doing that as a treat on Sunday to doing that every day for lunch. And it kind of, it's almost like it's kind of playing into both arguments at that point. Now we have this like dosage quantity situation that's way out of control, which is like kind of a feather in the cap of the calories, calorie out group. But then it's Mm. also like all this like change in even the types, like we move from using coconut oils and lard to using these industrialized seed oils. And then those mechanisms that you talked about come into play in not only 
a change, but also in a, a massive like increase in quantity too. Yeah. Well, no, I, I agree. Well, one of the, the big problems is that uh, about 50% of the food consumed today is consumed away from home. And when you consume it away from home, you don't, uh, you don't have any control over what goes into it. And I've worked in the backs of restaurants before. In fact, I owned a restaurant, uh, really an ill-fated venture, but the a long time ago. But I know the kind of oils that they use back there, and that's what they used to cook everything in. And the olive oil that they have, they bring out to you know to give people to you know dip their bread in or whatever. But they certainly don't cook in it back there. They they cook in in canola oil or or usually soybean oil that's in these big uh, you know containers. And so you lose all control when you eat out, and about 50% of meals today are, are, are eaten away from home, whereas back in, let's say, the 60s, it was a, a vastly smaller percentage, you know, something like 5%. When you look at the curve on that, it, it kind of mirrors the obesity curve, too. When I was a kid, we never went to a restaurant. The only time we ever went to a restaurant is when we were traveling. And now, I mean, you know, my kids, I mean, they eat out all the time. I mean, it's become so inexpensive now, it's easier to do that than it is to go to the grocery store and buy food, whereas it used to be just the opposite. Uh, restaurant meals were much more expensive, and so people cooked at home. And uh, and I think that's one of the big problems. And the other big problem is people, because of the scare uh, about saturated fat, have switched to seed oils, whereas they used to use saturated fat. A, a case in point is McDonald's French fries. They used to be made with stearic acid, which is or with beef tallow. They were cooked in beef tallow, and uh, now they're cooked in vegetable oils. And doctors, I want to I want to just bounce a, a couple of just sort of uh, just generalized concept off you and see what your thoughts are on this because I think you know you've got such good perspective on this stuff. But one one thing I just saw, and this is just a, an aside, is I saw a study where where sort of millennials were shunning breakfast cereal not because of any perceived health problems but because it was too much work they had to rinse a dish and so they're, they're not even willing to rinse a bowl in a bowl in, in the sink you know so so they're just they want something they can package unwrap eat yeah. for away so i mean that that we're getting to that level but let me bounce a couple things across across against you what are your thoughts of uh consumption of uh, glucose versus fructose. Do you think there's a there, there's a qualitative difference in how that impacts the body? You know, we can we can look at like sort of sort of the the, the prototypical Asian people that eat starch with with rice, white rice typically, versus what we might eat here where we get our carbohydrate sources, which may have higher uh, concentration of fructose either via fruits or even perhaps you know sucrose based stuff. You know, it's glucose and fructose mm -hmm. combined. Uh, what are your thoughts on fructose versus glucose? I know I know Dr. Lustig would have a lot to say on this, but yeah. I want your thoughts are. Yeah, I'm not as rabid about it as he is, although I do think there's some differences. And I also think that, uh, uh, I mean, you know, typically the, there are a couple of different kinds of high fructose corn syrup. There's one, I think, this this 90% glucose or 90% uh, fructose and 10% glucose. And the most common one is 55%, 55, yeah. uh, uh, 45. And then there's one, I think, that's 60 glucose and 40 fructose, but the most common one is the 55-45, so you're getting a little bit more fructose than glucose. And I think there's a difference in in that, not you know, not a major, huge difference, but a little bit of difference. But a lot of times, uh, I just read a study the other day, I wish I could cite it, but I can't, where people looked at the, the content of, of high fructose 
uh, corn syrup containing products and they found out there was a lot more fructose in them than was on the label than the 5545. So I think people probably are getting more than the 5545. And then there's also a difference. I mean, I've looked at studies on that. There's a difference between um, fructose and glucose being bound together as they are in sucrose and just being, you know, basically an invert sugar like honey, you know, where they're, they're separate. They're just, uh, you got glucose and you got fructose together instead of, of bound together. And so I think that, you know, the, the fructose, the increase in fructose over the same period of time has probably contributed to the whole thing as well. Um, and I don't know if it would, you know, fructose is a lot sweeter than glucose. And so if you take a soft drink and you, uh, let's say you had, uh, pick a number, let's say you had 10 teaspoons of, of sucrose in it, and that gave you a certain amount of sweetening, and you could probably get that same amount of sweetening with, say, 7 teaspoons of, of fructose or high fructose corn syrup. Uh, it might not have been a bad deal if they had just done that, but I think that they put the 10 uh, teaspoons of high fructose corn syrup in there to match the 10 teaspoons of sucrose. And so you are getting more um, fructose than you normally would. And I don't know how much that's contributed to it. You know, there, I've got a friend who's a biochemist, uh, Richard Feynman, and he is just adamant that, you know, fructose and the amounts that we're eating today isn't problematic, that the carbs are the problem, not the fructose. Then you've got uh, Rob Lustig on the other end of the spectrum that thinks it's all the fructose. And so, uh, you know, I don't really know because I tell people not to eat it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. So you're on protein power, you know, back in 96 protein as of recent years has kind of, kind of gone under attack. You know, you've seen the concerns around IGF activation, IGF one and, and mTOR. What are your thoughts regarding that? Are you have you kind of come back on thinking protein's still good? Or are you worried about that, or what are your thoughts around too yeah. much protein and all this is going to kill you and give you cancer? Uh, I, I think it's kind of BS. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I do. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that, there there's an there's another signaling molecule called AMPK that's upstream from mTOR, and if you go on a low carb diet or a, a calorie restricted diet. Um, you know, you, you, um, um, change AMPK in such a way that, uh, it suppresses mTOR. So when people go on low carb diets, they, they kind of go on calorie restricted diets in a way because you just, you eat to satiety, but you don't eat that much, uh, because the, uh, I mean, protein's so filling and that's been shown over and over. It's been shown that protein, when you substitute protein for carbs, people lose weight. If you substitute protein for fat, people lose weight. Um, uh, I think I think protein is a great nutrient. I would not uh, particularly restrict it. It's you know it's hard to get a lot of it anyway, unless you're getting it in a you know as whey or something in a shake, which I don't I don't have a problem if people do that from time to time. But I just uh, the older I've gotten, the more I just advocate people to eat whole food diets. You know, eat meat. I mean, you're not going to get that much protein in meat like you would eating an equivalent amount of whey. What do you What do you think, Doctor? Just Just to kind of talk a little bit more. What do you think? I mean, I, I think statistically, I think we had Ted Name and all. We, we talked about saying that the, the sort of current protein intake for the U.S. population is around 12 percent. I would assume you would you would you would agree that's too low. Would you have a number you would say would be more ideal? I mean, I know my diet is probably 
30, you know, 30%, maybe even up to 40 some days. And so what are your thoughts on, on, on what we should be targeting for protein? Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure as long as you accompany it with fat that you have to worry about it. I've never thought about what I would consider an upper limit, but, uh, that's what I always tell people. If, if protein, uh, were detrimental to health and we're, you know, killing off your kidneys as it's claimed to do, you know, you would see long lines of bodybuilders at dialysis centers and you just, you don't see that. And there have been, you know, bodybuilders forever that consume what I consider huge amounts of protein and they seem to suffer no ill effects from it. And so, um, I mean, I think they've shown kind of that, that there's not really an upper limit in terms of something that you could actually consume. And, uh, and so I think if people ate just a meat-based diet, it would be tough to get too much protein. Yeah, I think I think there's an appetite regulation. As someone who does that, I think there's a pretty good appetite regulation that occurs. I think you get enough yeah. to your you're hungry, and your body tells you you've had enough. Let me go to another topic, just to put you on the spot on here. There's been a little bit of back and forth. I know uh, guys like Steve Finney and Jason Fung are on different spectrums with regarding fasting. You know, Jason Fung is is uh, a proponent of, in many cases, for certain people, prolonged fast. You know, a week, sometimes longer, two weeks, even up to you know, I think even up to a month in some cases. And then and then Steve Finney's like, no, it's not good. You know, nothing more than a certain hour. Do you have a, Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's. Uh weird you know i went from the uh i went from the finney school kind of to the fung school <laughs> because i i i kind of thought hang on for just a second i've got uh, uh it's just my email and i don't remember what i think sorry the, uh, you know, I went from thinking that uh, if you have, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that if you restrict calories, your metabolic rate falls. And so fasting is the ultimate restriction of calories. And so you would think your metabolic rate would really fall there and would kind of stay down. And, you know, when people do restrict calories for a long time and their metabolic rate falls, and they try to go back to eat more, it's difficult to keep the weight off because of their reduced metabolic rate, which is sort of a function of their mass, too. But I've seen some, uh, and, and that's sort of Steve Finney's theory on it. And, you know, I've read a lot of the references that uh, Jason Fung has uh, provided to bolster his opinion, and it doesn't really look like that happens as much with fasting. And I don't know why that is but it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem like it happens as much and clearly if you eat within a you know a confined period of time uh you know a lot of good things happen to you and it really is the, it's been shown i think pretty conclusively by mark matson and animals it really does you know their uh bdnf goes way up there uh, they can end up eating the same number of calories uh, rodents can if they do it alternate day or with restricted feeding and you know they age more slowly they uh, they're in much better health uh, it's just um, 
So, I mean, I think there's a lot of benefit to it. And if you look back, and I always try to look at everything through the lens of evolution, and I'm sure that in evolutionary times that we did eat in limited periods of time until agriculture came along, because then people could eat all the time. Uh, but, you know, you'd go out, you'd have a kill, you'd gorge yourself, and then, you know, you'd have to work up the energy to go, <laughs> to go out another hunt before you got food again. And so, uh, I don't know, I think Jason is uh, um, kind of on the right track with a lot of the stuff he does. Um, and, you know, it's strange to me because when I was treating patients, you know, it never occurred to me to just tell them not to eat. <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing I find kind of interesting about it too is I think it's like, um, it's kind of like what you said where if you get into it in the right way, then it, you end up in kind of where where Dr. Jason Fung is kind of like advocating for where I'm sure a lot of people doing a sustained fast under his watch, they're, uh, you know, if they're not like, super obese, uh, you know, they're probably eating a pretty good calorie surplus on either end of that fast. So mm -hmm. perhaps they're setting their body up to kind of maintain that metabolic rate as opposed to someone who's more or less a chronic dieter, yo-yo dieter, deciding, oh, okay, here's, here's the big thing. This is my, this is what I'll break through the plateau with. So they go from like that kind of that goofy message from a metabolic standpoint to their body to like, you know, a message of even more scarcity. So they're kind of doing it in a less a less ideal scenario and and then maybe you end up where Finney's talking about and kind of that you know yeah. damaging your met, your metabolic rate yeah well yeah i don't know it just uh it seems to work pretty well in his hands and in the hands of a lot of people that uh that uh you know i've read about i mean i have a, a friend who's a, a trainer that we co-wrote a book about a trainer in new york named fred hahn and he um uh, has been fasting lately and he's increased his strength and increased his lean body mass and decreased his, his, uh, fat mass. And, you know, he's 50 something years old and he looks great now. I mean, he looked great before he was always, you know, big, not very big. He's, he's, you know, it's not like he's huge. He's now five foot seven or eight, but for his, his size, really a muscular guy, but it was kind of under a layer of, of fat. Not that he was fat. You know what I'm talking about. And now that he's fasted and he's just gone crazy about it. And I know that he's a pretty analytical guy and it really got my attention, the transformation in him. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's probably a good thing as Richard Feynman, my biochemistry buddy always says, you know, if you want to lose weight, don't eat. Uh, if you have to eat, don't eat carbs. If you have to eat carbs, eat low glycemic carbs. <laughs> so, so, you know, you'll definitely lose weight if you fast. So I get, and this is one thing that a couple, couple comments on this stuff. So one thing that I, I've been a proponent of, I call it intermittent feasting. I just eat, you know, I eat a big pile of meat and then I'm not hungry for 20 hours. And so, yeah. I mean, I think it naturally, I think that more mimics, you know, like I said, I don't think it was convenient for cavemen to run around with Tupperware boxes no. and, and bust out the meal. So, I mean, yeah, they probably feasted. Now I would argue if they were killing big mammoths, they were able to preserve some of the meat. And so they mm -hmm. probably had access to that meat for the regular. But I still think, particularly if they were cooking, you know, to cook a meal back then was a big deal. It wasn't like you could just flip the microwave on and you're done. I mean, you got to, you got to do all that stuff. And so, right. 
probably, yeah, probably infrequent meals were probably the norm back then, once or twice a day or something like that. Would be my this speculation based on what seems natural to me, eating what I think is a fairly mammoth-like diet. But uh, the other thing that's interesting to me, and I haven't seen this, you know, in regard to fasting, and maybe that maybe I just haven't seen the studies, but I've looked for. Uh, studies on fasting carnivores or, or caloric restriction in carnivores. I've seen, uh, you know, mouse studies and a lot of animal studies. I've seen, I've seen some studies on dogs, but they're never fed a carnivorous diet. They're fed chow. And so mm-hmm. when we restrict the chow, we see the, we see the sort of uh, benefits of caloric restriction. So I'm just wondering what it is about calorie restriction or if it's something from the carbohydrate restriction, which is actually most of the benefit. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, uh, I do. <clears throat> Uh, Raven published a great study back in about 1987 looking at that that very thing, and and he made the case that um, when people went on calorically restricted diets, they really couldn't restrict their protein. I mean, they needed to maintain an adequate protein level, and so the protein level of the calorically restricted diets that they used were um, about the same as the non-calorically restricted diets, and what they, they cut back was primarily carbohydrate because at the time that that these studies were done, that was the majority of calories people were eating. You know, people back then, when I first got into this thing, people were eating about 46% fat and about 46 or 47% carb and the rest uh, protein. And so when, when you keep the protein the same and you restrict everything else, what you mainly restrict is carb. And so he actually made the statement in there because the the, the monkey that because they were using primates and also with rodents that this study was about and said that you know that that they um, they they got weakened they got this they got that they had all these things happen to them the ones that ate the full diet relative to the ones that restricted and he made the statement that what happens to them is almost like radiation sickness. And he basically said, so carbs equal radiation. (laughs) It was was in the paper. And so I thought, yeah, that's a pretty amazing, amazing thing to say. And so I think a lot of the the benefit that you see from chlorophyll restricted diets comes from restricting the carbohydrate. Yeah, I would be so bold as to say some of the some of the the, the plant material that's in in the carbohydrates too. Perhaps some of the you know obviously the seed oils would be would be a big one for modern context, but perhaps oxalates, salicylates, and some of those other things might be problematic. Here's an I'm going to throw an oddball one at you, Doctor. I hope you don't mind. There's been a lot of talk, or I wouldn't say a lot, but there's certainly been some talk now about something called deuterium. Have you heard any any of the any sort of the uh, discussion around that particularly, you know, it's an isotope of hydrogen that, that people, there's a guy named uh, Laszlo Boris, and then I think Dr. Jack Cruz have been proponents of restricting deuterium in the diet, and, and that also supposedly plays havoc on the metabolic machinery, particularly at the mitochondrial level. Have you heard, do you have any insight on that, or is that total news to you? That's total news to me. Okay, that may be, some, that may be something that's out there. <laughs> I need to look it up, though, because I, I really I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah, that's been discussed, uh, you know, kind of in this, you know, we, you know, when you, when you get, uh, when you get into the, into the sort of the fringes, you find out where all the fringes are, you know, it's kind of funny <laughs> to see, uh, see, see what's floating around there. So that is, uh, you know, they, they, uh, I've heard everything on the fringe, but I have not heard that. Yeah. So look up deuterium. It's a, uh, it's, 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 you know, it, it supposedly lines up with what a lot of the stuff that you and I might already be saying, but you know, they think that's the, the prime, me- you know, the, the, the sort of the deep down root yeah. cause mechanism. Yeah. So. 
bacterium is. I just did, had never heard of it in a dietary context as having, you know, an effect one way or the other. So, yeah, well, I'll look that up. That's interesting. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. And so what are your, so again, having done this for, you know, most of your career, where, where do you think we're heading with, with all this stuff? Do you think that all carbs are evil? Do you think that, uh, you know, should we all be fasting? Should we all be eating more protein? Should we be eating plant-based? Should we be eating meat-based? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I think that people, uh, A, ought to eat whole foods and not processed foods. And B, I think that they should eat, uh, uh, I mean, if I had my way, I mean, if I weren't so weak, I would be on a carnivore diet all the time, but I, I can't give up heirloom tomatoes. <laughs> and, that, and that's about really all I eat is, is meat and heirloom tomatoes and asparagus. I mean, that's boring as it is. That's, that's my diet most of the time. Uh, but I think people in general would do a lot better on a carnivore diet. Uh, I think they would do a lot better on a low carb diet. And I think you've got, uh, you know, all kinds of, of, vectors coming together that way you know you got the people that are into fasting and and you know and confined periods of eating which i mean if you just restrict the time you can eat you can't eat as many carbohydrates as if you can eat them all day long and i think and then you've got the whole low carb contingent and then you've got the people that are saying well you know you got to eat a lot more protein and i think all these things are pointing uh toward a future where um Carbs are not going to be thought of as they are today. And there have been periods in history, you know, in modern history, uh, where, like Salisbury that you mentioned, I'm when Banning got going on this, um, and that's what Salisbury developed, a Salisbury steak to help people bant. And, um, and that was probably the last time that people worldwide, because Salisbury was over here and Banning was in, uh, was in England, and so the, the Banting diet was, was kind of a, a worldwide phenomenon. In fact, the, uh, the, the, this book that I told you about, Thin So Fast, the first one I, first one I wrote, got uh, translated into Swedish. And it was, you know, Banting was in the title. So a lot of, of languages actually picked up the term Banting as their word for dieting. So, I mean, it was a worldwide phenomenon back then. And I don't think there's ever been that much of a worldwide phenomenon. Atkins made a little blip when his book came out in 72. And he's well-known over here. I don't think he's as well-known worldwide as he is over here. But I think now it's it's kind of becoming a worldwide tw- uh, trend. And I think that, uh, I mean, with the advent of the Internet, it used to be that the information you got was restricted to what was in the newspapers or what you would see on the, on the news. And now people have got unlimited access to information, essentially. And I think that as time goes on and they they evaluate this and they see the benefits of it, that we're going to more and more and more kind of creep in that direction. Yeah, doctors, I would agree wholeheartedly that this this internet, internet, social media, and social force has been a big game changer. You know, I think uh, we had. Uh, Oh, Tim Noakes on here, we talked about the democratization of medicine. I mean, I think we're, we're getting that scale where we can, you know, it's like it'll either work or it won't. You know, the cream yeah. will rise for the top. And I think, you know, yeah. if, if it doesn't work, people aren't going to do it. And so I think we're seeing a lot of that, which I think is pretty cool. But I, here's one other topic I, I wanted to get your opinion on. You know, there's a lot of talk now about cholesterol. Is it, 
you know, is it not only causative towards heart disease, is it necessary and sufficient? Is it oxidized cholesterol? Is it glycated cholesterol? Is it some particular cholesterol particle? I know we, there's a lot of just sort of going back and forth. As Do you believe, as I do, that there is a subset of population where cholesterol may have less of a role depending on the type of cholesterol it is uh, in, in the overall situation? Or is cholesterol 100% of the time always going, going to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease? What are your thoughts? And I'm talking about LDL, total cholesterol, yeah. you know, without yeah. getting too much into the weeds there. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, part you know, two. <laughs> yeah, my, my view on this is that, um, which is obviously a controversial view, but my view on it is that it, it really probably doesn't matter and that a hundred years from now, people are going to look back on all this and laugh and say, what, you know, what were they thinking? And, um, you know, I read a note when I in fact, that was a section that I wrote in Protein Power was about cholesterol. And at the time, I thought that, uh, you know, that there was something to the lipid hypothesis. And I was promoting a low-carb diet because in our patients, we had discovered that their lipid profiles uh, really improved when they went on low-carb diets. You know, people that came in with high cholesterol, they dropped their cholesterol. People that came in with... Uh, Bad triglyceride dropped their triglycerides. So I was, my, my opinion then was, yeah, it matters, and this diet will fix it better than anything else will. Because at that time, that was pre-statins, or I guess statins were just starting to come in then, but they weren't in, in use like they are today. And so there really wasn't a way to much to lower cholesterol uh, like there is now. And but you could do it really well with a low carb diet. So I said, okay, well, lipid hypothesis is probably true, but here's the way you fix it without having to take medicines. And now I think that the lipid hypothesis is, you know, kind of bogus. I mean, this whole, uh, you know, the the AIDS epidemic, um, which is now on the wane, thank God, but the AIDS epidemic generated this whole slew of people getting PhDs in virology because that was where it was at, as they say. And the whole lipid hypothesis has generated a whole slew of people who are now lipidologists. And it's it's difficult to, um, you know, to undo your whole career. And so what lipidologists have done, in my view, is that they've tried to slice and dice this thinner and thinner, is it, you know, is it particle number? Is it particle size? Is it oxidized this? You know, they're desperate to find something that's a lipid that uh, drives heart disease. And until, uh, as far as I know, they haven't ever done it, found anything. I mean, they find correlations, but they can't prove causality. And the, uh, you know, all the cholesterol lowering studies have not prolonged life. I mean, sure, you can lower cholesterol, but does it prolong life? All the, the multi-hundreds of millions of dollars of research has gone in it, and all it's shown is that nothing happens. You do reduce the risk of heart disease, or you do reduce the rate of heart attacks, but you increase the rates of other things. So you just basically trade one risk factor for the other because there's no decrease in all-cause mortality. And the only group in which there is a decrease in all-cause mortality is men under 65 who actually had a heart attack. And there is some benefit to, to statin-driven cholesterol lowering there, but is it the cholesterol lowering? Is it the anti-inflammatory effects of the statins? I mean, what is it? Nobody knows. But that, that group 
is a is a small group, and in that small group, there's a small benefit. And if you look at it at a pub, for a, uh, from a public health perspective, is it worth the money spent to even treat that whole group to prolong the lives of that whole group in a minuscule amount? So, I mean, I think the whole lipid deal is just a, um, I mean, it's just a non-starter. As I say, that's controversial, but that's my view. And I figured this out for myself, at least to my own satisfaction, about six or eight years ago. And so now I've just quit fooling with it and reading about it and keeping up with the latest slicing and dicing of the particles and this and that, because I just think it's, uh, it's, it's not valid. I don't think the hypothesis is true. Yeah. I mean, that is, and that's so much of what we see is the deeper you dig, the more you understand, you don't understand it. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's anybody that sort of goes into this stuff. They, they, the more they read, the more they find it, they don't understand it. It gets more and more complicated. At some point you have to step back and say, what's the big picture here? And I think, you know, when we look at cardiovascular risk, we got to look at the whole package. You know, we're, we're not a single, uh, yeah. we're not a single biomarker. We're, we're, we're a complicated system and we've got all these things that interact with us. And I think, you know, there's some generalities we can make. If you walk around and you're not obese, if you have decent exercise capacity, if you have decent body composition, if your, you know, inflammatory status is low, you know, you, you've got to say those things matter probably as much or more so in my view. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think that's the case. And I just think that there are a lot of really, really smart people that went into lipidology and they, um, you know, built their careers on that. And it's hard to have a 20-year career and say, hey, this has all been for naught. And so you keep saying, I mean, and I understand it perfectly. You just keep saying, you know, there's got to be something here. Look at this correlation. It's just like me and my correlation with the vegetable oil and the obesity epidemic. You say there's got to be something here, and you keep looking to to see what that could be. And if you're a lipidologist, it's the old you know if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so they want it to be some lipid fraction that's the cause of it. And I just, uh, I mean, I just don't. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's just no there there. And I may turn out to be the idiot, and people a hundred years from now are pointing back to me and say, "Look at this moron." You know, going on, going on a podcast and saying there's nothing to this. I mean, we won't know for a hundred years. That's that's just my view. Well, and what I do know is that that you know, when my wife and I were in practice for a long time, we probably had, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, eight to ten thousand patients, and we had a little statistical analysis done of our practice uh, because we were we were selling a a product and we had to, we couldn't make claims unless we had a statistical analysis and the, the, when they came in they showed that uh, the average patient stayed in our practice for about 12 weeks so if you multiply these people times 12 weeks and most of these people are middle-aged people that were obese obviously uh, and some had diabetes some had, had uh, you know they had all kinds of, of problems and in that whole time period that we were in practice treating people with low-carb diets, we did not ever have one single heart attack. Now, when you when you multiply it that many patients times 12 weeks, that's a lot of patient years for middle-aged people, and you would think some of them would have heart attacks, and we never had a single one who was, uh, you know, actively on the program. So... Um, and that was people eating a lot of saturated fat, 
And so anyway, just based on that, uh, I don't worry about it a whole lot. Yeah, it'll be interesting when we, you know, we now have some techniques, you know, like I had my coronary artery calcium scan done a while back and it was perfectly normal, you know, zero score. And I think a lot of a lot of people now that have been doing these high fat or ketogenic or low carb diets are going to start seeing those things potentially. Maybe I'm wrong. Like I said, maybe we're both wrong, but I think we're, we're seeing that trend. And I think those are going to start to put some kind of nails in some of those those hypotheses. What are your thoughts? I mean, just looking towards the future, you know, and I look at this and I see, and I, maybe I'm hyper-reactive to this sort of stuff, but I see uh, sort of attempts to legislate uh, and, and and dissuade people from consuming animal products, meat in particular. You know, they've, they've got companies like WeWork that are forbidding their employees to go out to eat dinner and, and eat meat, or they won't they won't they won't re- reimburse them. If you eat a plant based meal and you take your clients out, we'll pay you. But if you go out and have a steak, nah, you're not getting paid. You know, the army in Finland has just mandated two vegetarian meals a week. There are I see a lot of colleges now and college campuses where they're 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 mandating. I mean, they're not serving any meat in their in their cafeterias certain days a week. Do you do you see that that is a problematic trend? Do you think it's good for the environment? Do you think you think that's a that's a, a, a laudable thing that we should be doing, or do you do you have res- and then and then thoughts about uh, the future of you know maybe we're going to grow these these uh, meat in a petri dish. You know what are your any thoughts on that stuff? Does that does that just have a just a, a general visceral thought on that, or have you given it much thought? Well, yeah, I've given a little bit of thought. I mean. Even my political inclinations, I'm against the regulation of anything, especially what people eat. And that's why when all these people talk about a sugar tax, uh, you know, I'm against that just because, you know, nobody knows. If they regulate sugar, who's to say that the next thing they're not going to regulate is saturated fat? And so I just, in my view, the government is just better off out of that. That, That's kind of what has got into this uh, situation in the first place. So, uh, A, I'm anti-regulatory uh, B, I guess if a business wants to pay its people reimburse them for plant-based diets and and not for meat-based diets I mean I guess that's their deal but um, I, I think it's uh, not a good trend and I don't think that uh, eating meat is harmful to the environment and in fact if you see the uh, God, it's a blank on his name um, the guy from from uh, Africa. That this, yeah, Alan Savory, yeah. Yeah, yeah, got Alan Savory, uh, who's done all this work on, uh, you know, animals going through and what they do to the land and, and the, the benefits that come from that. Um, I mean, I think that we could support a lot larger herds of animals than we do now. And I think people are a lot better off eating uh, the animals than they are plant-based foods. I mean, I like to think of the meat as the the primary part of the meal, and if you're going to have plant-based foods, you supplement with those, like I do with the heirloom tomatoes. Uh, and I would like to see everybody go in that direction, but unfortunately, I'm not the emperor, so I can't make them do it. The meat in a petri dish, uh, you know, I always hew to the old guideline. It's uh, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature, and if if you can make that, I doubt that you're going to be able to replicate everything that's in meat and if you could i say fine you know if, if you want to do that i suspect it would be a lot more expensive than uh, than just raising beef uh but i don't know i mean i don't know that much about it yeah right now the fda and the usda is actually having talks in washington about that they're talking about uh, how that's going playing out i've been kind of paying attention to some of that stuff and so it's a fairly complicated process and they've got 
you know, a lot of things go into that difficulties. There've been a lot of technical difficulties still going there. And you're right. It's, you know, it's kind of, is it the margarine versus the butter thing? Is it something, you know, we'll, we'll adopt, you know, and then 30 years from now, we'll find out that, holy cow, all these people are getting sicker, you know, and yeah. that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. We don't know. And that's exactly what happened with the, uh, you know, with the first dietary guidelines. Those were based on essentially good intentions. And it was a, a huge experiment that was foisted on all of us unsuspecting people. I mean, we were the subjects in a decades-long experiment driven by governmental regulation. And you can see how that's turned out. Um, you know, obesity has you know, skyrocketed, diabetes at epidemic proportions. I mean, it's not been a good thing. So that's why I don't think people ought to tinker with the food. Yeah, it seems like... Uh... If you go back a couple thousand years, you find people spending hours every day trying to find what they knew they were supposed to eat. And nowadays you see people spending hours every day trying to figure out which food they can easily get that's either going to kill them or make them live forever. So it's like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny to look at it from that, from that time frame. Yeah, but that's true. Dr. Hayes, what do you have coming up? I know you, you still, are you still on a lecture circuit? What's come, what's, what's going yeah, on for you lately? Yeah, here and there. I'm, uh, I'm speaking at the low carb conference in Denver and, uh, uh, that's the only thing that I've got right now that's on the horizon, but my wife and I are working on a update for protein power called protein power 2.0 because it's, it's both an upgrade all of the 2.0 and it's been 20 years, although she constantly reminds me it's now 22 years so <laughs> it's just you know we've we've mainstream published i think 13 or 14 books so uh, and it's a real pain in the rear to deal with publishers mainstream publishers nothing ever happens fast and and uh, it just you know it takes forever to do anything and so since for one of our other businesses we have a little publishing company and we write books for that we've decided to self-publish this one and the one thing that having a contract with a publisher does give you is accountability. And when you're publishing it on your own, you don't have that accountability. So everything that comes up, you know, kind of takes preference over nose to the grindstone hammering out the book. So I, I keep saying it's going to come out soon, but you know, it just every day, it seems like something comes up to interfere with writing. And you guys have got a little uh, sous vide product. A little, is it the Inova? Is it called the Inova? Is no, that what it's called? No, that's our that's our competitor. <laughs> oh no, what's yours in? Sorry, sorry. Ours is called the, the sous vide supreme. We sous-vide were supreme. The, first, okay. the first people to bring sous vide to the home cook. It's uh, it's amazing if you look at uh, you know Google Trends for sous vide, they're just totally flat. And then when we came up like that, and people with uh, you know a lot more capital than we have came out and. They um, founded competing products, and we've still got the what I figure think is the best one. I mean, we've got a a, a water bath, which is nice. It's a you know it's a, a an appliance that you can set on your counter, and it's always ready to go. And when people get into sous vide cooking, I mean, it's one of our big marketing challenges when people get into sous vide cooking. You're trying to tell them what it is. It's vastly more complicated to talk about it than it is to actually do it. You can do it like this, but when you try to tell people, it's, oh, that's too complicated. I don't want to do that. And when and these competitors that come out with these inexpensive little things called immersion circulators, these stick things that go in a pot, and you know they work okay, but 
they break a lot because they've got moving parts rares because no moving part uses convection currents but it uh they break and then every time you want to do it you got to break all this stuff out and you have cords dragged everywhere whereas ours is just an appliance that sits there and you can use it anytime and when you really kind of click to the benefits of sous vide cooking you cook almost everything that way which we do and so it's um it's a real marketing challenge because when people look at that, they say, okay, here's one for 449 here's one for 169 I'll do the 169 but they're totally different, uh, totally different products. But anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's going okay. It's, you know, we're selling all over the world, but it's just, you know, it's a, just a continuous, continuing challenge. Yeah, I've, I've cooked, I cook all kinds of different ways. You know, I've, I've been playing with either on the grill or I sous vide or I, I, I put there's a little air fryer that I've been trying out and I've been doing some reverse searing in the pan. How do you finish those when you do a steak and a sous vide? Do you do you, do you use like little flamethrower deal or do you do you throw it in the pan or how do you finish those usually? We do it all ways but what we've basically done lately is just um, the uh, just a hot skillet and you put a skillet on the stove, a cast iron skillet and get as hot as you can get it. Take the stuff out, dump it in, sear it quickly on both sides and you're finished and sometimes we have a little torch and sometimes if my wife really wants to speed it up she'll sear one side in the skillet and then do the, torch the top top side and, <laughs> and it's nice because you can just you know whip it out and serve it in no time that way um and you know no mess no fuss no big cleanup and you know everything's better it's, it's really nice because you know if you cook a, a steak on a grill you lose about 20 to 25 percent of the volume of it from water and, and fat draining off into the into the fire and when you do it sous vide you don't lose any of that you go in with a 16 ounce steak you come out with a 16 ounce steak and the then the fat and the liquid that you don't lose you uh, don't lose makes it much more tender yeah, plus you get you're not paying for those calories you didn't eat. You know, that's that's kind of <laughs> like the that's like the the, the the high fiber plant based diet. Half your nutrition goes down the toilet. You know, so yeah, I mean, exactly. Maybe the same analogy. That's pretty. You know, it's kind of interesting is you've got you know you've got this steak which is like one of the oldest foods in the world and the recipe's never changed. I mean, it's yeah. just it's always good. And and you know nowadays you've got a we we look in the modern culinary world and they're always trying to reinvent things to to, mm -hmm. to entice people. But you've got this one food that that continues to keep the same recipe. Yeah. You know, meat plus fire and uh, and you're good and it works. Yeah. And it's like a, it's yeah. like classic music versus hip hop or whatever. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. One never goes out of style. But yeah, it's you know the the other nice thing about sous vide is that you can do a lot of stuff that you can't do any other way. I mean, for example. If you want to cook slow cook ribs, if you put them in a smoker and you cook them and you get them to where they fall off the bone tender, I mean, it's always well done because they've cooked for two days. You can cook them ribs sous vide for 24 hours. You can cook them 72 hours if you want to. We usually cook them 24 hours and you can get the same ribs that the, you can just pull the bones out of them. They're delicious to eat, but they're medium rare. You can't do that any other way because time and sous vide time tenderizes so when you put them in a smoker that's to tenderize them because the ribs are notoriously not very tender and when you cook them that way that's the only way you can get that particular outcome is with sous vide cooking and so you know i don't like to eat ribs any other way because i've been spoiled <laughs> well that's got me i just had a couple steaks before i started but i'm hungry again <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's going to be 24 hours for you to cook one of those, Sean, so you have yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> not a steak, not a steak. <laughs>
Doctor, it's been a pleasure to have you on. It's been a great talk. I may, I'm going to try to do my best to get out to that Denver one. I may, I know Amber O'Hearn's having a little carnivore deal. Yeah. I think the day before, kind of a prelude to the Denver low carb. I'm going to do my best to get out there. Hopefully, I'll shake your hand in person yeah, when you're out she, there and say hi to you. She, so, yeah, you doing a thing on that? A prelude to that? I think so. I think I know in March in in either Denver or Boulder. You know, the day before the low carb USA yeah. thing kicks off. She's having a little deal out there, and that you know, Boulder's just up the street from Denver, as you as you know. Yeah. So, oh, she's um, in Boulder. I thought I'm not sure. I'll have to double check with her, but yeah. I know I know she's. I'll have to look with her. It might it may yeah. be in the same place as a as a Denver one, but I'm not sure. But I, th- I thought I saw Boulder, but I'm maybe I'm pretty mistaken. sure it was Boulder. I think I saw that yeah. advertised. Well, so, well, if I get up there, then I'll come down to and say hi in, in Denver too. Yeah, so we'll take the trip. Be fun be, to see I may come to Boulder too because our whole. Uh, sous vide operation is basically in boulder right now okay yeah look it up i think amber's advertising it now i haven't committed but i think i'm going to commit here i'm I'm excited about this stuff but uh good stuff uh any other stuff zach we need to we need to talk about Uh, i think we covered a lot i think it was this will be a good one uh i know our listeners will like to hear what you have to say dr Eads. so if you want to plug anything go for it um we'll put some links in the show notes too to where the listeners can kind of find you if they want as well well, if they want the best sous vide unit, they can go to sous com. But that's about the only thing I've got to plug right now. <laughs> awesome. <book> is, yeah. <laughs> well, it's awesome having you on. It's good to have your perspective. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. Yep. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. A ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So, it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat, and type in the promo code HPO, and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon, and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d we're both also on instagram where you can find me at zach bitter that's at z-a-c-h-b-i-t-t-e-r and for sean it's at sean baker 1967 
That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.